1: called it Ripe with Tender Monsters and Understandably Tortured Humans. It opens the window to our weirdness just to crack further, reminding us that the human heart is and always will be filled with wonder. Ramona Ossibel praises it as
2: quote tenderness
1: from Star Bright Writer. This is the book that will make you want to tap the person next to you and say, I'm sorry to interrupt, but you have to do this. Michael Andreessen's writing has appeared in The New Yorker, Tin House, Xoetrope, All Story, Quarterly West, and elsewhere. He received his MFA in Fiction from the University of California, Irvine, where he is currently a lecturer in the English department. The CBS takes a lover as his first one. <laughs> <laughs> Michael collection, The Wayland, is wildly unconventional, yet university resident darkly comic, yet tender and soulful. The New York Times called it weird and wonderful. Ossabel's writing is melancholy and fine, and shines in illuminating everyday scenes of life. Clough notes, to read an Ossabel's story is to escape to another place. Her prose is assured and often lovely. Mona Ossabel is the author of the novel Sons and Daughters of Ease and Plenty, and no one is here except all of us, winner of the Penn Center USA Fiction Award and the B.C.U. Cabell First Novelist Award, and finalist for the New, Public, New York Public Library's Young Lions Fiction Award. She's also the author of the Story Collection, A Guide to Being Born, and has been published in The New Yorker, One Story, Review Daily, and Best American Fantasy. We're so fortunate to have these two fantastic writers with us this evening. Please join me in giving a warm welcome to Michael Anderson and Ramona.
0: This, no, this is just for show. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. oh, there oh, there we go. Now that's <laughs> too loud. How's it going?
2: Good. Yeah. I don't yeah. Like
0: yeah. What do you want to do? <laughs> <laughs> um, there. So we flipped a coin. We didn't. We didn't actually. But um, we're gonna pretend we did, and I'm. I'm gonna go first.
2: Yeah. <laughs> okay.
0: <laughs> old pros. Old pros. <laughs> um, before I start, I just want to say, uh, <clears throat> um, uh, in 2002. Uh, I came to Los Angeles for the first time to visit a friend who lived in Los Feliz, and uh, that friend took me to a bookstore that he thought I might like, uh, and it turns out uh, I liked it very much, and it was this bookstore. And then when I came to California to uh, when I came to California to go to school, I was coming up here more. This is nice because I can just look at you, and I can just pretend I'm just talking to you. Um, uh, and I started coming here to readings, and I made a secret wish, uh, and the secret <laughs> wish was to someday come here and uh, read from a book that I wrote, and uh, so it's very nice to realize that wish, and yeah. realize it with all of you, and not only do I get to do with all of you, but I get to do it with one of my favorite writers and favorite people. So thank you to Skylight for, uh, for making my wish come true. Uh, <laughs> So I, I just thought I would read from a, kind of a deeper cut. Uh, and uh, this is uh, you don't you don't really need to know anything. This, this is a story called The Saints in the Parlor, and um, I'm just gonna read part of it. Uh, I don't think you need any introduction except that uh, the characters in this story um, don't have names. They're sort of they're named after descriptions of how they look and that can be if you're not looking. At the page, that can be hard to figure out, but you'll, you'll, you'll catch on.
2: There's
0: the saints in the parlor. <clears throat> yes, the saints are in the parlor, but why? What force has stolen these four from their somno-incorruptibilis and delivered them into the company of this bolt starved Tiffany lamp, this threadbare Persian carpet, these mantled porcelain curios? Even they, the assembled saints, do not seem to know, but their lives and deaths have made, them, have made this kind of not-knowing familiar. And so for now, they are content to linger in the parlor and await the divine (laughs) indicia that will deliver them hence. Shall we pray? Asks Saint Her Own Hand on a Plate. Always, says Saint Upside Down Skull, in every moment, with every breath. The other Saints agree, and so they pray. Saint Her Own Hand on a Plate sets down the plate containing her severed hand, and Saint Upside Down Skull sets down the skull of the venerated apostle, and, joining hands with the others, they bow their faintly haloed heads and kneel between, kneel between the velvet settee and the fireplace in prayer. O Heavenly Father, begins St. Tongue of Flame, <coughs> we are adrift in a sea of peril and confusion, but for the compass of your grace. When he speaks, which is perhaps too often, the Tongue of Flame at St. Tongue of Flame's forehead jubilates, ejecting small sparks and somersaulting with zeal. Without it, almighty Lord, we wander the wasteland. Thirsty for your holy providence, the better to serve thee. Thy holy providence, <clears throat> to better to serve thee, says Saint Upside-Down Skull. Or you, your, don't mix forms. <laughs> or metaphors, says Saint, her own hand on a plate. A drifted sea and wandering the wasteland? <laughs> it's hardly a wasteland, said Saint of dubious, possibly mythical origin. <laughs> is that or is that not a working samovar? The ember at St. Flame's brow glows a a perturbed festal blue. Amen, he says through clenched teeth. Amen, the other saints reply. St. Upside-Down Skull gathers his sackcloth robes and rises to his feet, recovering the the skull of the venerated apostle from the Davenport and resettling it teeth up into his cupped palms. St. of Dubious, possibly mythical origin also rises, causing the thousand rings of his armor to tinkle like a chandelier. His halo is ornamented with residual pagan symbology, and the small whorls and serpentine squiggles of precursor gods. His trident, stained with the blood and awful of the beast of Padua, glows patiently from the umbrella stand. There is a sudden draft. For a moment, the fire in the fireplace and St. Tongue of Flame's Tongue of Flame gesture in the direction of a door nudged slightly ajar, hinting at a world beyond the parlour. Is this the much-anticipated sign? Perhaps a better question is, was there ever a chance it might, da- it might not be interpreted as such? Can a draft ever be just a draft in such hallowed company? At last, says Saint's upside-down skull, the way is opened. God be praised, says Saint, her own hand on a plate. And immediately they kneel again and offer prayers of thanksgiving. They cross the threshold into the foyer, filled with confidence and direction. They are lands, safe in a herd, following an invisible, unknowable shepherd. But why then would they separate? Why, for example, would St. Tongue of Flame lag behind the others before ducking surreptitiously into the trophy room? It may have been their open criticism of his prayer, only the latest of several barely perceived slights since they all arrived inexplicably in the parlor. He has often been the object of ridicule ever since that day in 1270 (laughs) falling asleep beside the Volga when he dreamed of being cast into a fire that did not harm him and had awakened to find that very fire resting at his forehead for all to see and be awed. To be blessed with the Pentecostal fingerprint of the Lord that burning gift of prophecy and panglottery, is to be made apart separate and distinct from other men. You shall be cast out the voice had said in the dream, reviled and hated, simply for speaking my name. Dejection and mockery, he knew, were part of the job description. And he was used to receiving abuse from heathens and blasphemers, but from his own spiritual kin? When the opportunity to turn left when the others turned right presented itself, he he seized it without thinking twice. And now look! The bear in the trophy room was so fierce, so tall, the rug is white-bangled. The sofa boasts links and ocelot throws. The 23-point buck mounted above the wet bar is the lord of all he surveys. Saint Tongue of Flame wrests a long-nosed Browning X-bolt from the standing rifle rack, lines up the rearing bear, stills his breath. There is liquor in the wet bar. He considers a drink as he draws a bead between the bear's eyes. This is an unfamiliar place. He doesn't know their hosts, And besides, he wouldn't want a repeat of the court of Philip IV. (laughs) He fires a pretend bullet in a straight line from the rifle's muzzle to the bear's. The tongue of flame marks the imaginary impact with a pop. Before receiving the tongue of flame, St. Tongue of Flame never had much of a gift for oratory, Imagine then how disappointed he must have felt when that same artlessness followed into him into his evangelical career. <laughs> True, the tongue of flame had allowed him to proselytize to all peoples in all languages, but it had failed to imbue in him the required charisma to st- to ensnare the hearts and minds of men in the crook of his fervor. In Albacete, he had preached for days in front of the old Moorish bazaar, but aside from the occasional grin at the novelty of a slob with a burning forehead speaking flawless Arabic, few people had paid him any
2: heed.
0: <laughs> Escaped.
2: Uh,
0: <laughs> it was the same story in Capetian France, and among the Seljuks and the Nords. The last of the Pictish tribes had evicted him at Spearpoint, and the Saracens had found him too tired to bother beheading.
2: <clears throat>
0: Don't forget Latvia, a voice reminded him, and Cappadocia, where you were nearly drowned in spit. And just a minute ago in the parlor. St. Tongue of Flame pours himself three fingers of Bushmills from the wet bar, swallows it whole, pours three more, and settles himself into a gorilla leather chair to stew. The Tongue of Flame's orange flicker is almost invisible in the looking glass of the tumbler. Without an audience, it can barely break a shadow. Cast out, the voice says, reviled and hated. St. Tongue of Flame belches. His Tongue of Flame farts a puff of sulfur simply for speaking my name. In the secret passage, Saint, her own hand on a plate, tries to remain calm, to breathe. The cold stone walls are narrow, the passage prohibitively dark. <clears throat> Why had she not taken one of the oil lamps with her? Because of her hands, stupid. <laughs> because to have only one hand is to be constantly made to choose. Because when a casual inspection of sundry cold cuts and boxed crackers results in the back wall of the larder sliding open with a revealing creak, exposing a forgotten corridor to its first sip of light in ages, the inquisitive one-handed person has a choice. Bring the oil lamp stationed conveniently on a nearby oak barrel, or bring the plate containing your own severed hand, the undecayed symbol of your steadfast devotion and purity, the object present in all earthly depictions of you, from statues to icons to oil paintings hanging nearly every transept in Eastern Europe, the one thing from which, all evidence to the contrary, you have never been parted. For St. Her Own Hand on the Plate, it's a no-brainer. It isn't until the secret door, controlled by a temperamental hydraulic lock, closes firmly behind her that she has the good sense to regret her choice. At first it had felt good to break away from the others. After the disappearance of St. Tongue of Flame, the three remaining saints had spent several minutes in the library, praying for further guidance, before their meditation was disturbed by the growling of St. Her Own Hand on a Plate's stomach. You are in need of repast, said St. Upside Down Skull with the unconcealed scorn of the perpetually fasting. It's nothing, she had said. You're not hungry, asked Saint of dubious, possibly mythical origin, eyeing her belly with suspicion. I'm fine, she insisted. Then it is the beast. Come to us in the guise of an empty stomach. He drew a small dirk from his gilded belt. Come, fiend, he said to the stomach. I'll put an end to your growling. Let's have you out of there and into the light, where we can stab you. (laughs) I'll find something in the kitchen, Saint, her own hand on a plate, said, glowering to the two men, for all of us. She had left the room annoyed, but relieved. The company of men, even very holy men, had always made her uncomfortable. Perhaps it was because the first few months in the convent were so freeing, so wonderfully peaceful. Or perhaps it was because the last time she was in a room full of men, she had cut off her own hand. (laughs) I will have your hand, the heretic king proclaimed, to the young nun, before a great hall crowded with degenerate nobles and corrupt bishops. You will be my bride, Sup at my table, warm my bed, and supply my airs. Your hand, the voice had echoed, your hand, your hand. And suddenly it was as though she was not herself, but acting a part in a play, in which the stage direction called for the young, comely initiate nun to place her wrist at the center of a nearby serving dish remove the small gardening axe from her postulate's habit, and with a single confident whack, rend forever what God had made whole. Had there been more light in the passage, she might once again, admir- she might once again have admired the hand's miraculously preserved state, as she had done so many times in her cell in the king's dungeon. Again she might have noticed the palm's sweet rosé, the crumbs of brown bread still scattered on the plate, the garden soil still tucked under her fingernails. The clean bisection of the wrist revealing bones still white and veins still blue. A mirror image of the bones and veins on the impossibly fresh wound on her stump. The ends so identically preserved that it seemed with one easy gesture she might kiss the two poles together and find them suddenly reunited. Returning her to a world of two hands, which is to say, a world to which freedom of choice has been restored, where one hand might never again be burdened by the other. But it was too dark in the passage for such, for such observations. The walls are too close and growing closer. It is too much like the cell where she had been kept. The quiet dampness too much like that quiet dampness. The dim light from her halo too much like the light emerging meekly from under the barred and bolted door, which at any moment might be impeded by the wine-drenched shadow of a man. Her breathing quickens. She wants to release the plate, to reach for her gardening axe in defense of whatever might be out there in the dark. But that was another time, another habit. Here, there is only the hand on the plate, pulling her towards an even deeper darkness. Just beyond the aviary, the sculpture garden is a hodgepodge of styles and subjects. Greek heroes and Spanish bulls. Classical odalisks lounging beside postmodern pyramids and exploded steel girders. Alabaster cherubs by the hundreds, dancing and flirting and pissing into every open pool.
2: (laughs) Saint of dubious,
0: possibly mythical origin rests his trident between the horns of a stone satyr and sits at the edge of a koi pond. It is night. A half-moon is in the sky and in the water and in the glittering disco ball of his chainmail. Somewhere... Somewhere a cricket chirps. A warm evening breeze kisses Saint of Dubious, Possibly Mythical Origins' cheek, licks his hair, ruffles his wings. He has wings now. Sometimes he doesn't. Sometimes his trident is a Norman cavalry lance. Sometimes he wears a burning crown, and the beast of Padua is a salamander. In an hour, his wings might be gone, replaced by a a mantle of snow-white fleece. By morning, his sigiled halo may be swapped out for the antlers of King David's stag. Some nights he goes to bed a man and wakes up a woman. His past is only lore, existing in the imagination of perhaps a dozen conflicting medieval scrolls and apocrypha. He is not a saint that was, but a saint that might have been, surviving through enough stories that enough people want to believe. Beyond the pool of bubbling carp, somewhere deep within the garden, the beast of Padua purrs like a jungle cat, announcing its readiness to be slain again. Saint of dubious, possibly mythical origin, reaches for his trident, which is now a knobbed blackthorn shillelagh, and tiptoes into a grove of bashful moods. He feels eyes on him. His grip on the shillelagh tightens as he marks the creature's scent on the wind. Inside him, the voice growls. The voice is always growling. Soon a furious melee, a wrecking ball of bludgeoning and teeth, he can feel it. Soon a garden of rubble, amputated granite limbs, and plastered polyhedrons (coughs) reduced to blasted, ageometric chunks. Soon the beast smote and the saint victorious, or grievously wounded, or perished beside his prey, claws buried in each other's throats, hate in both sets of dead eyes, and then too soon after, on their feet again, relocated to a sun-bleached desert or a forgotten cave, some other version of their story in some other grand theological metaphor, the whole maddening engine primed and kick-started and revving to life again. But here in the antebellum moment, Saint of dubious, possibly mythical origin is at his least confused. He perfectly comprehends the ever-shifting amalgam of his own iconography, the animal barking of his own brain. In this moment... He is the most consistent and real that he will ever be. The shillelagh feels like part of his own hand, and like the hand of something greater, a mightier, more righteous hand with which he might c- cave in the skull of the world. Under the hoof of the stone satyr, under the hoof of the stone satyr, the same cricket chirps. Quiet, flea, says Saint of Dubious, <laughs> possibly mythical origin, can't you see I'm stalking? <laughs> What's your stalking there, big guy? asks the cricket. <laughs> the beast of Padua, says the Saint, the enemy of creation. <laughs> Nobody here but us crickets, says the cricket. <laughs> I feel it approaching, says the saint. You need to chill out, pal, says the cricket, giving the saint the double guns with its antennae. <laughs> Take a load off. <laughs> Do not tempt me with rest, saint of dubious possibly mythical or says. <laughs> for my vigil is long and fraught with peril. In that case, the cricket says, how about some vigiling music? And with its legs, it violins the first few bars of nature's most recognizable lullaby. Saint of Dubia's possibly mythical origin is, of course, exhausted. His vigil, it turns out, has been very long, several centuries too long. As the cricket serenades, it is all the saint can do to stay upright and alert. Relax, guy, says the cricket. Looking down at him now from the collarbone of a traipsing marble nymph. The creature's legs continue their minstreling. It is such a powerful symbol, that chirping, so synonymous with drowse, with the occitant laying down of burdens. Before he knows it, the saint is on his ass. I mustn't, he says, battening down a yawn. Hey, check out these insane tits! The cricket shouts from atop the nymph's galloping bosom. Imagine laying your head down on these babies. The saint imagines laying his head down on the cold stone of the nymph's insane tits. (laughs) That's right, says the cricket. Let it all go. Eternal vigilance is a young man's game, and you and I are as old as they come. (laughs) Beast! cries the bewitched saint in sudden revelation. Beguiler! Are you sure? says the cricket, grinning a microscopic grin. Looks like an ordinary cricket to me. And yet, the cricket begins to grow. It grows until the marble nymph crumbles beneath it, until its compound eye is a dinner plate, until the stridulation of its legs and wings echoes for miles. The saint is barely able to raise raise his arms in defense. It is not just the paralyzing song. His arms have become the arms of a weaker man, a scholar or a sage, and the shillelagh has become a goose-feathered quill. The saint tries to grip it like a weapon, but is unsure which is the more threatening end. No stalemate this time, says the beast of Padua through an enormous quivering labrum. No spear ventilating my side. Just you, alone, howling. The saint's peal rises above the, above, the, above the sound of gleeful chewing, loud enough that the birds of the aviary take wing. In a sudden squat with uh, take wing, a sudden squadron of minas, toucans, and flamingos launching from their perches in search of better sanctuary. Deep in the columbarium, Saint her own hand on a plate sits, her back against a wall of urns stretching infinitely down the corridor. The vault has no exit that she can find, no secret staircase leading back to the study or the nursery, no drainage grate revealing starlight or moonlight. When she stirs, the echo is bottomless. When she is still, there is only the dislocated sound of water flowing somewhere else, and the occasional growl of her stomach. Once again, she has forsaken the smug, overbearing company of men, and once again, it has left her imprisoned and alone. There is a Baroque painting of her hanging in, a sacrist- hanging in the sacristy of Mariatros Basilica in Graz. It depicts a young saint her own hand on a plate in her cell awaiting execution. In it, she is kneeling in a shaft of sunlight from a high window. The chiaroscuro indicative of the period gives her pure white alb an explosive radiance. In her hand, the plate. At her feet, the bones of her predecessors. Under the door, the shadow of the executioner. She wears an expression of pity, but not for herself. It is the bones she pities, the executioner, the world of sin and cruelty that she will leave behind. But in reality there had been no shaft of light, no window. She had not knelt, but had lay curled and shuddering in the corner, as far as the door as possible, waiting. She does not kneel now in the columbarium either. One leg lies straight before her, the other bent upright at the knee, and it is on this knee that she rests her unsevered wrist, leaving her still-attached hand to dangle at her shin. The plate with her other hand sits in one of the empty alcoves, at home in the company of other dead things. The underground room is full of them, row after row of an incinerated ancestry leading down into the darkness. The masters of this house are here, generations interred in clay and copper vessels, listening to the water run. She wears no look of pity, and indeed feels none, for herself or anyone else. Art gets so many things wrong, except for the man at the door, the voice reminds her. There is always a man
2: at the door. Thank you.
0: this is the best like we get to be each other tight man this is why it's so cool like I have to I have to get a good listening post
3: <laughs> that story is so good thanks um, thank you Skylight thank you all of you there's so many good people in this room from all different kinds of lives both of our lives and it's really really awesome to come back here I feel like it doesn't feel like a real thing until I come to Skylight like, yeah it's a book whatever like I've I <laughs> gone to Skylight yet it's not count. Um, I first read yours work like 13 years ago. Oh my god! And I'm just going to make a request in public right now that can you please not take that long next time? Yes, yeah. I, okay, uh, sure, done. <laughs> I don't I want to waste that. Easy. Long. Yeah. <laughs> I, I just, I, it's not going to work. For no, me. fair enough.
2: <laughs>
0: well, we're not all on our fourth book.
3: We'll get there.
0: <laughs> so was that embarrassing? Was that embarrassing? I, I think
3: it's amazing. Anyway. Um, I'm going to read you a very short story. Um, It is called, You Can Find Love Now, and it's in two voices. You will catch on. (laughs) (laughs) You are lonely, but you don't have to be. You have so many great qualities. Just think of all the single ladies out there who are waiting to hear from you. Whether you are looking for lasting love or just a little fun, this is the only guide to online dating you'll ever need. Within the hour, you'll be on your way to eternal happiness. Let's get started. When creating a username, keep in mind that it should be concise and easy to remember. Make it personal. If you're a dancer, maybe try Hip dancer 21 <laughs> Find me at Cyclops15. Cyclops1 through 14 were taken. Now, choose a tagline that will attract the woman you want. Secret do what no one else is doing. I'm eight feet tall, and I have one giant eye. (laughs) What are your interests? Be honest, but enticing. I hand-sew my own shoes using a needle made from the fang of a wolf. (laughs) I sleep hot. I want nothing more than a sheet on my bed, even in winter, even in a cave know who your target is. Where does she live? What does she look like? What hobbies does she have? I like fat girls, old girls, tall girls, tired girls. (laughs) Girls who lack adequate clothing. (laughs) Girls whose best idea for getting my attention is to send a photo of themselves holding suggestive popsicles, their fists covered in red melt girls in wheelchairs, girls who work professionally at the Renaissance Fair. (laughs) (laughs) You could choose other men. Men who like to think about feet, men who have thick back hair, men whose greatest pride is the time they flew to a nearby nation and tried to deplete its store of alcohol and slept on the beach one night. Wasn't that so fun? (laughs) And when they woke up, everything had been stolen or lost, and they had to walk back to the pastel yellow hotel naked in the early heat of another day in paradise. Everyone has had good times. Everyone has a picture of himself in front of a pinkening sunset with a glass of white wine. Choose them if you want to. Choose me if you want someone to hold you above his head in the moonlight, bite your wrist until the first rust comes out. Tell the ladies a little more about yourself. What's your own unique story? The first generation of Cyclops were forgers. The next generation, my generation, was a band of thuggish shepherds living in the grasslands of Sicily. (laughs) We trapped so-called heroes in our caves, we bit into the warm butter of a human leg, but the only one who got famous for it was my brother. (laughs) We still live under volcanoes, hacking at iron, trying to revive the old tradition. I left home, too hot, too old. And live in Washington State. (laughs) I like the fog. I like the rain. My volcano is more famous than any of my brother's volcanoes. I never hear from them. They're not on email. I teach online English classes not to get paid but because I like to feel smarter than someone else. (laughs) One or two people in this room. I teach all the classic books except The Odyssey. <laughs> my photos are taken in profile. Maybe there's time to get braver, to embrace my own unique beauty. I subscribe to the magazines that tell me that we are all beautiful. If only we could learn to tap into our potential. I am me, and no one else is me, and that is a miracle. I am a miracle. The downside. My mother has been dead for some hundreds of years, so you'll never meet her. The upside, my father is the god of the sea. <laughs> so we can guarantee good weather on our honeymoon cruise. <laughs> He's shitty at love, my dad. He smells like an overcleaned wound, and he won't quit working. Every day and every night, somewhere in one of the world's oceans, my father is striking the surface of the abyss with swords of fire. Do you smoke? Do you drink? How often do you exercise? Do you support charities that help animals? (laughs) With an unexpected bonus, would you A, donate to a cause you really believe in, B, save half and spend the rest, or C, celebrate with your friends and margaritas? If you want me to set a trap, I'll set a trap. (laughs) A first date picking blueberries in the whitest, cleanest sunlight, tin pails. I'll bring sandwiches and chilled Chardonnay and tell you that we are already the good people we wanted to become. Maybe you'll be generous and keep up the conversation all afternoon. Pretty Karen98 was generous. Pretty Karen98 looked into my eye when we chatted online and laughed at my jokes. But she never answered my messages after our date, even though her status was still marked single. Don't mention your previous relationship history. Leave your emotional baggage packed and in the closet. You are on the market because you are awesome. Sorry, let's try that again. My actual perfect day? Descending below ground early, full of milk and blood and meat to forge iron. There is no such thing as day or night in the volcano, and any sense of time comes from watching the metal change shape. From ore to spear, from ore to trident, from ore to thunderbolt. If I am strong that day, the mountains will shake with the strike of my hammer, the heat of my flame. I can't see. I should be better at basketball than I am. I don't eat vegetables. But my eye is blue, and it's pale, and it's beautiful. My vision is good, though not great, but understand this. I will never again visit an ophthalmologist, or an optometrist, or anyone else who claims to be an expert of my organ. I do not fit in the chair, and I wish I could forget lying on my back on the floor of that darkened room while a small man climbed onto my chest with that sharp point of light. I'm not sorry for what I did to him. Now he can see for himself what it's like to have one eye. You have almost finished creating a magnetic online dating profile that will attract more women than you ever thought possible. What else do you want the ladies to know? Remember, be yourself. (laughs) I do remember the old feeling sometimes. A maiden washes up on my island, tailed or otherwise. The cave is sweating and there are mineral stalks growing from the ceiling. I have no idea what time it is, ever. All my wrist and ankle shackles are homemade. Struck from iron, I myself dug from the earth. The maidens were not as beautiful as the stories tell you. Their hair was salt-stringy, and their faces were pruned. You're doing great, mean. <laughs> Too long in seawater can unmake any loveliness. Yet I meant to love them. I meant to tend to their wounds. When I pounded the shackles with my hammer, the person I imagined chaining was my father. I imagined slipping the cuffs around his watery arms, Not to hurt him, but to keep him. But my father never offered himself up on my rocky beach. I'd see his big hand out there sometimes, swilling the surface of the sea, but he never came close. Maybe he was the one who threw the maidens to me, his dear son, his wifeless boy wanting an heir. I will not shackle your slender wrists to the cold walls or gnaw your nails down to the quick with my remaining teeth. Mm -hmm. I will not leave you hungry while I eat a roast goat at your feet. (laughs) I've dealt with those issues. (laughs) Imagine the inverse. I have the softest mattress in the world made from the combed fur of fawns Choose me, and you'll be choosing warm oil on your hands and cold water in your glass, meat on your plate from a lamb that suckled on my pinky when it was first born. If I came to your house tonight, where would I find you? In the living room? The kitchen? Waiting at the door? I'll call you Aphrodite and smell the sea in your hair and shuck oysters for you from the depths. I'll tell you that I've never seen a real goddess until now. Come with me and be adored deep below the earth. While you sleep, I will strike a huge sheet of metal until the shape of your body comes into relief. You never have to take me to meet your friends. You never have to take me anywhere. You never even have to see me in the light. Your grandmother will tell you that all the good men are gone, but then here I am, and I'm ready for you. (laughs)
1: Well, I, think Look. Camouflage Eden. I think you have to get the camouflage. This <laughs> is <laughs> a
0: wonderland of things that we all want to buy. I totally get it. <laughs> Yeah, that was great. I miss you. That was I know great. That was, was wonderful. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I, I guess Is uh, 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 question? This is the part where we...
3: We have questions for each other if you guys don't have questions. But we do. we figure you might or we could just questions. catch up That's true. while people watch. Eden has a question. Look <laughs> at <laughs> <laughs> you don't really have to have a question. Does anybody
2: have a question? Yeah. Um, I want to ask the one about um, sectioning your stories,
1: like you did in this collection. I was intrigued by the way that story collections are put together anyway, but um, you put that extra organizational element. I just wondered if you could
2: talk about why or what you think that added to the overall feel.
3: Yeah, that's a good question. The question is why the the book is in sections. It's in four sections. And I'm going to look at them to make sure that I'm saying them right, <laughs> because you know, it's the Bay of Hungers, the Cape of Persistent Hope, the Lonesome Flats, and the Dream Isles. And um, the question is, why put them in that in those sections? And I, it started. I did that in my first collection too, so it sort of started there. And it, that happened because I was worried that I was writing all these stories about the same thing. And I went to Michelle Latile, wherever she is, and I said, oh no, Michelle, I have all these stories about pregnancy, and I was like, am I just repeating myself? And she laughed, and she said, you know, that's what makes it a book, right? <laughs> and she always knows exactly what she's talking about, so I was like, oh. <laughs> and then I felt like I had permission to, like, push that, to be like, this is about, this is about birth and transformation and, and all the ways that that can happen. So then I wanted to really shape the book so that it, it, the whole thing was about that as one piece in addition to being 11 stories on their own. So that one is, goes backwards, it's um, birth, gestation, conception, and then love. So this time I, I was looking at the book and I, was, I had the stories kind of laid out and I knew that they, they take place all over the world and they're kind of about exile and longing and the idea of home and the distance from home and the kind of being, being far from the home of yourself and your people and also your actual like geography. So I wanted to do something with geography. I knew I wanted to make sh- make the, the to give it some kind of physical space. So that was that was the way that I figured out to do that. And I, I wanted the uh, the awayland to be like the larger place, and then within wayland to have these four separate kind of worlds. Yeah. Follow up yeah. yeah.
0: question: question. Uh, If if a guide to being born was about babies, uh, which you were having at the time, as I recall, yes. is, is there something, some, some sort of uh, meditation that, that kind of brought this about?
3: Well, there's still a lot of babies in here. I'm not over it. <laughs> still fascinating and weird. <laughs> so that's, that persists. Um, but also, it, I, have, I, left, I left where I grew up in New Mexico when I was 17 and hadn't until a few months ago figured out where I wanted to live. And I had moved every couple of years for all that time, for 20 years. And I felt this, like, real feeling of, like, will I ever have a home? And what does it mean to have a home? And what does it mean to have, for, like, wandering to be my home? Like, I felt, like, the only time that I felt completely, like, right was when I was moving. And so I was thinking about that, like, movement as a place and the wish for a steady place, but then also the fear of a steady place and, then people who have been kind of kicked out of their places and all the iterations of what place does, and the, like, your own identity as like a location also. Right. Right. Yeah, so that's in there. But also, babies. babies. <laughs> <laughs> your work... I, I love you. Oh, great. You know, no, that no, please. Just, <laughs> no, 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 I'm very confident. Okay, I <laughs> just... <laughs> so, your, your work has... Um, it
2: hovers at a depth and then resounds. And I know you know what I'm talking about, and when you get yourself there. Do you know you're there? How do you get yourself there there? Do you arrive there? And what gives you the bravery of hover when you come out alive? You know what I'm saying? Because you're in a very courageous spot. Thank
3: you. And I'm just you know, could you riff on that for me? Okay, so let's see. The question is how to like hover at a depth and then go into it? Is that what you're talking about? Like 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 hang out in like a, a, an idea and then dive into it? Is that what you're talking about?
2: It's sort of like you strike a match against uh-huh. the, the most awesome horror of human existence and come out. <laughs> 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 you know, and you know, you just come out alive and singing and I'm just wondering, can you, do? You, I mean, maybe I'm wrong, you don't know that process, you don't feel it coming on, you don't feel it not working, you don't feel it...
3: Happening. Yeah, I think I think I'm always only writing because I want to get to something that is truly deeply troubling or beautiful or that feels profound to me in some way so I'm writing toward that and the and the other pieces like the structure around it is in service of that and if it doesn't ever get there like if it's just a clever idea if it had just been a clever idea about a cyclops writing an online dating profile and it had gone where we expected to go the story wouldn't have interested me after a while and I would have given up on it and I have plenty of those stories that start with a funny idea and then like you know, peter out. And so it has to go if it's not going to go all the way down then it's not it doesn't, it doesn't matter to me so I guess it's just trusting that just trusting that and trusting that the question it has to be urgent for the story to come to life I think. Do you have that?
0: Do you feel like? Yeah I mean I, no it's a very similar thing I think when we were when we, we had a, a, a guest workshop leader named Brad Watson who's an amazing writer whose books you should read right now um, but uh, he he called it um, the black hole, the black hole in the story that like everything that you can't see, but that everything seems to like it, it has so much gravity, it's drawing everything in. So like and, and sometimes that's just an idea. Um, and I think that that sort of gets it. Or I mean, that's that's what I'm looking for, too. And not like you, I have. I have stories that are like this is just a funny idea, this is just a cute idea, and you get to the end, and you're like that was just a cute idea, and that's all that was. But sometimes you, you, yeah, you don't, and it is. It feels like you can't see it, but you kind of know it's there because it's pulling and everything else. Exactly. That's yeah. Such an abstract, like cop out answer, but. It's, no,
3: but it's great. I I think about that all the time. That's still one of my like main things. Yeah. He called it the black hole to which all other matter is drawn. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. It is, exactly. With you, it feels like you're
2: off and, and, and you're landing, your landing with hope, and it's just amazing, it's a, your stomach just goes through the earth, and then it's so regulatory Oh, smile? thank you, that's lovely, thank, thank you.
3: Dropping off a cliff, let's do it. <laughs> yeah,
0: so when you wind up in the parlor, what were your saints' names? Yeah. Uh, <laughs> w- w- what's my saint name? Um, <laughs> Saint probably shouldn't be a saint. I mean, <laughs> Saint somebody messed up in the whole canonization process. Oh, that sounds right. <laughs> <laughs> That's a great thing. <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> <laughs> oh,
2: hey, yeah, yeah it's, it's going great. Uh, yeah.
0: Uh, so last week we're at class over here. We got the chance to talk to Michael. These kids, by the way, these guys are uh, go to high school here in Los Angeles. Oh and, yeah, what school do you go to? The
2: school, school, Los Angeles. This is our
0: teacher over here. Yeah, Amanda Fouché is their English teacher. And, uh, by the way, yeah. And I went and talked to their class, and they asked, like, some of the smartest questions I have ever received. Um, so, now I'm really scared.
1: That <laughs> I'm not actually going to repeat
0: a question just because... Oh, sure. Yeah, great. I already
1: know the answer. I'm not going to give down your answer. Okay.
0: Answer. No, thanks. Okay. Yeah, make it. Let's pretend that we. We asked Michael about um, why he's interested in the fantastical, the absurd, this American cynicism, and he said, uh, I don't know "What I was going to say?" I totally <laughs> forgot. Um, no, thanks. Uh, uh, no, What did I say? What? Uh, no. Why mention
3: it? I. I um... It was the intersection of the
0: intersection of American. Cynicism so. So. Okay. <laughs> It sounds smart. The intersection of something that 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 no um it's it is sort of uh, there's I actually have a slightly different answer and because I because I was kind of thinking about this um uh, recently in a different context it is it's there's a kind of I think when we write in the with the fantastic or the ridiculous or or whatever um I think we're kind of trying to get at. We're looking for that black hole, I think, in a weird place. Um, and for me, it's often just like sort of trying to uh, throw in interesting things to keep me awake while I'm writing it. But I also think there's something there's something great that happens with the fantastic. I was thinking about so this is a bit of a digression, but I just I was thinking about this today. Um, I was trying to think of where I first got the sense of that, like of the the fantastic in the in the normal or in the everyday. And I I actually think it's. Um, you guys read C.S. Lewis, Red like the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe? Mm-hmm. It's that lamppost. That lamppost, I think, is my favorite object in fiction <laughs> because it's like, you know, Lucy's playing hide-and-seek. She goes to the wardrobe, and there's this, she, she winds up in this forest, and a forest is a perfectly normal place. And then she the first thing she sees before she sees a fawn or a dragon or anything uh, is the lamppost. And a lamppost is a perfectly Conventional object, and you put the two together, and they both become magical. Suddenly, the forest is magical because it has this weird thing, and the lamppost is magical because it's in a forest. And I, I think, when, when I am thinking about using the fantastic, it's because it tends to bring something out of both. Uh, it gives it gives the story a kind of fantastical energy that is really nice for the story, and it also the emotions inside the story that, are, that might seem foreign because they're taking place in this weird place, because they're happening like saints who are in a house for no reason. You know, or maybe there's a reason. No, there's totally a reason. Uh, but, but it, it, it suddenly like throws everything kind of out of focus in this way where everything feels kind of defamiliarized. I think to the class I, I described it as a kind of encrypting and decrypting, like, I'm, like we're sort of taking a conventional emotional experience or human experience and encrypting it in this in this fantastical world, and then the reader has to decrypt it. They have to take it from the fantastical world back into their own lives and find it, find out how it attaches to something that they understand, something true that they feel. Um, so, and my stories end up cynical because that's how I feel. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> and that's and that's when I look around. A lot of times, you see. I think that maybe yeah, mine end a little more cynically, and yours end a little more hopeful and like. And we need both. <laughs> yeah, um, okay. I'm
2: sorry.
0: <laughs> yeah,
2: yeah, great. Yeah, Tom. Actually, sort of a follow-up to that. Yeah, great. Do you feel like with the encrypting
0: and decrypting approach to uh, fantastical or magical realist or whatever, is there, is it hard to avoid it? Uh, does it ever just become sort of
2: just a metaphor kind of thing? Like, this just means that? Like, how do you sort of keep it sort of like? This is the other
0: side. This is the the other, for me the, the story that goes nowhere. That's just a cute story. Yeah. There's there's a trap on the other side, which is the story that's about something. And it's always a really perilous moment when you realize what your story is about, because then you have the temptation to really make it about
2: that.
0: Um, and if that if that gets to like kind of what you're tired, and that then you, now you have to. Pretend you don't know that and keep <laughs> writing it as though because these still have to be real people in a real situation or you know maybe not real people, but the, every the terms have to feel real, and you still have to you know engage with it on a human level level first, and it has to work on a human level first before it can have these other themes and meanings. Um, the Tom has. Yeah,
3: I agree. I think I have to, like, trick myself out of that also. Like, it can't. if I set out to be like I'm going to write a father-son story yeah. like, it comes out stupid. Yeah. It, because it, it, is, it is. Like, yeah. it doesn't have any teeth. It's not a real thing.
0: And there's no nuance, and then right. it basically becomes, like, something that's really easy to write like a, a fifth grade English paper about. Right. Cause then it's like, oh, it's all right there and we can just, you know, it's all on the surface and I'm done in an hour and that's fine. I don't really have to even chew it. I can just kind of swallow it whole. Um, and we don't want that ever.
3: Right, right. yeah, yeah. But still, like, it's like the friction between the, like, the, the cute idea or the clever idea or the title that I like or whatever the thing is that is originally like, ooh, what would that be like? And then something real. So like, if I can get those two things Present. Then I feel like I they they like drive each other forward, and then I guess right. Yeah. Anything else? Um, what are the authors you have to read everything they
0: wrote, and when we got to the
2: end of the body of their work, or just didn't think we couldn't live like those. <laughs> just those authors. Can you just name those authors
3: for me? Who are the authors that we read everything that they ever wrote, and when we got to the end, we felt like we couldn't live. <laughs> <laughs> That's, That's a great down question, down yeah. question. Yeah. I don't know if I have that person. I, I have people that are like that I love so much that I don't read everything because I feel like it's too it's either too much like what I'm what I'm trying to do at the time or like mm-hmm. I feel like if I read this I will be so overwhelmed with the greatness of it that I will not try anymore That's because right. there will be no point. Mm-hmm. So like I have read I've read most of the Marquez at this point but it's like I parsed it out over a really long period of time. Mm-hmm. There's, I don't know, I think, I'm think i also a really slow reader, so I like to take a long time with, with every book, and I feel like I get slower and slower the longer I write, because of more that I'm paying attention to, and then, yeah, so, I don't know if I have, do you have...
0: I, I actually, this just happened to me, because uh, uh, I was, so it will surprise no one um, who knows me to know that my dad is George Saunders, I think he's great, I read every, I thought I'd read everything, and, and then I realized... uh, My friend Inez uh, mentioned that she was reading 10th of December, and I remembered that when 10th of December came out, uh, I was reading the stories, and then I got to the last story, which is 10th of December, and I thought to myself, if I read this story, then there's no more George Saunders. At the time, at the time. And so I didn't read it, and then I forgot that I did. And when she mentioned she was reading it, I was like, oh, my God, I never read that story. And I had this wonderful moment of, like, suddenly there was, like, a little, you know, that little last piece of chocolate that you save in the in the refrigerator and that you forget about. It. And then it's there and you find it, like, late at, like, at 2 a.m. when all you need in the
2: world is just that
0: little piece of chocolate. Um, so that he was mine, and that was actually a really wonderful experience of, like, hiding that That's story intriguing. from me. That's great. Yeah. 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 But uh, But, yeah, those are... Yeah, I don't I, I, Even the ones I really love, I can't say that I've read every single thing. Like, Bartholmate, those are, those are like 100 stories. Um, and I've had time to read 100 stories, but I just keep going back and reading the same 20 that I really, really love that teach me something new every time. So that's another thing, too. Is sometimes it's not the whole work, it's just these few stories or this one book that you just, you know, that you have to keep going back into because every time you come out, you've got something new.
2: Charles
0: Baxter. You like Charles oh Baxter? yeah, <laughs> yeah. We were just talking about Charles Baxter over, over uh, dinner, mm-hmm. for sure. Anything
2: else? Patrick.
0: So Mike, I'd like to say a little bit more about how the CVs has got the honor of being the title. Of the book. <laughs> This I I will, but I also want to hear how Wayland got to be the title because I don't even know that I know that story. No, it, it was it was a, an absolute last minute uh, decision uh, that and, and you know it's funny because I had this other title and uh, I uh, I thought the title was fine <laughs> and. Uh, And but but my agent actually uh, made a really great observation. It was called All Those Fails, and it was an okay title. But this is something to think about with titles that I never thought about. So this is actually might be useful to the writers in the room Um, because I think it's such a smart thing. Um, That title I liked it, but it's sort of like his his case, which I thought was really good was. There, there's this wonderful wonderful, fantasticness, mm-hmm. um, or I shouldn't say wonderful. I think, mean, whatever, you decide for yourself? There's bad. just this amazing,
2: <laughs>
0: it's just, I mean, you guys. Uh, no, uh, there's, there's this kind of fantastic quality that wasn't there in the title, and, um, and he was like, you know, I'd really like people to know that that's what they're getting into, because that's what I liked about it. Um, and I was like, damn it, that is too smart. I, that's right. That is a good reason. Um, so I just sort of came in the, the title story was not called that. It had a totally other much stupider title. And, uh, and so then we came up with that. Uh, uh, that title for the story, and that became the title of the book, and honestly now it's I can't imagine it being called any, anything else. It's, uh, nice. Thanks, man. It's Thanks, man. Thanks. Yeah, it worked out well. What about yours? What about, because I know this was something you were thinking about, too.
3: Yeah, I, I wanted, I had three books with long sentence titles, so I knew I wanted, I wanted a one-word title, but I also just knew that I wanted it to be like a compound word for some reason. I don't know why I knew that, but I made that decision somewhere in my heart. And uh, for a while in my head, I was calling it otherwear, mm. which you can rightly see why it could not be the title <laughs> of the book because it sounds exactly like underwear. <laughs> I know this can't be the title, but I wanted it to be a. I wanted it to be like the name of an actual place, and then so I just kept playing around until I got a waylands, okay. and I felt happy with that it as soon totally as weird. it appeared. Yeah. Yeah. And it's so nice to have a one-word title. You can know? <laughs> just <laughs> like, say it! <laughs> it that, I mean,
0: I'm jealous because I find myself having to really hit the T on CB's. Yeah. C-B's
3: t- yeah. Like Because you
0: can't go into that take that next T. That's where I screwed up, I feel like, is right. the T. It's really hard. It's yeah, hard you to don't you you know just like, to like glide thing. over it, and you can't. It's, you've got to really hit that one. So yeah, one word next time. Yeah, that's good. All right. <laughs> Great.
3: Anybody else? Yes, Danya. Is there a particular story um, that you
2: struggled with and was more difficult
3: for you to write? And if so, how did you get through it? Good one. There's a story in here that Michael and Marissa and Matt Summel, who's not here, uh, helped I mean, help me with all of these stories. But there's one story in the book where that's uh, got a young couple and they're newly in love and they decide, the girl decides, she guessed I it in her head, head that she was gonna I die. I love this story
0: sometimes. Oh god. <laughs> she
3: decides she's gonna die. She doesn't really have any evidence to back this up, but she decides it. And then she wants to be with her beloved forever. And so she makes this plan to switch hands. That they will like go undergo surgery and they will swap hands. And it was like I it it is you now will think I'm crazy, but it's the most autobiographical story. <laughs> Because it came exactly out of like being so like completely in love with the person and feeling like one lifetime was in no way enough and that it was really like a really upsetting feeling like there is there's something wrong here and I have to fix it and I remember being I was like 20 or something 21 maybe lying in bed and like, coming up with a plan, and being like, the plan is, whoever dies first will agree to move into the other person like a ghost, like, just, like, move in like a house, like, I will be the place that you live forever after, and I woke my then-boyfriend, now-husband, up in the morning and told him this plan, and he was like, (laughs) Sure thing, babe. <laughs> Sounds good. <laughs> I was like, but no, really, seriously, like you have to agree to do this. <laughs> so that, like that, like feeling stayed for years and years and years. And then I came back to writing. I was, I just wanted to write about Marcus Vineyard, where I'd lived, and I started. I set the story there, and I just like went from that feeling, and I decided to try to give it a physical form. Like, what would I have done if I were crazy, and I had had that same exact feeling, and I had tried to do something about it in the physical realm? But it was really hard to write because I didn't know how to like, get right in between the like, crack of this is impossible and insane, mm-hmm. and also gross. Like, it, I needed it not to turn into like, ho- like horror yeah. ridiculousness. I wanted it to feel really real and possible, but not absurd either. So it was you guys helped me yeah, with that's that. Great. Yeah, yeah. yeah, I remember that. That's was good. I think for me it was, the, it
0: was Jenny is the one about the girl without a head.
3: Um,
2: <laughs> we have which is
0: fine. Which, right? yeah, right. which you'd would think would be easy, because we all know what it's like to be a <laughs> Um But no, that, and, and really, it wasn't a sort of existential problem. I just sort of couldn't figure out, I couldn't find that black hole. I couldn't figure out what, what the story was about. I felt like it, there was something going on um, that I wanted to stay with um, and keep, you know, some. I, I, have, I have abandoned stories after, after fewer tries. But were, that one, I just kind of had to keep going back in, hit two, and had to try to figure that out. That ending changed a bunch of times. Um, yeah, that was just that was just trying to figure out what was going on, but not being able to, to toss it on the heap. Um,
3: and did you was it finding the black hole that cracked it? Yeah, I think,
0: and, and also just like coming up with. I I normally at the, at the end of stories, sometimes I, I feel fine just kind of casting characters off into the ether. Um, and having like horrible things happen, spoiler alert. But, uh, uh, but that one I, I actually really wanted to kind of take care of those characters a little bit more. Um, and I, I felt, this is, sounds silly, but I felt obligated uh, to take better care of them. And so I was I think I kind of kept going back in until I found, got them to a place where I felt like they were okay. Yeah.
3: That's so nice. <laughs>
0: Thank you. Yeah. Thank,
2: thank you. Bye. Bye. Please.
0: This 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 bookstore. You've been listening to the Skylight Books author reading series. Don't forget you can listen to this and all of our other great podcasts at
2: skylightbooks.com. Thanks again for stopping by